Well, basically in chapter 1 of Colossians, Paul puts forth the idea that Jesus Christ is all we need as far as salvation, as far as knowledge, as far as uh, strengthening, as far as growth. In chapter 2, basically the theme of that, he tells us about all the things that will not save us, all the different things that men can come up with. And of course, he's dealing specifically with Gnosticism and the different tenets of that. But the conclusion, once again, is that Jesus Christ is the only thing uh, that we need. And then, so he begins the discussion in chapter 3 of the, of the changes that take place in baptism. And the changes that take place in baptism, the first seven verses, deal with more of outward type of things. And now he's going to be moving more to the inward type of things, um, uh, things that literally come from the heart and come from the mouth. And uh, so we're going to be spending our time talking about some things that we're supposed to put off and some things that we're supposed to put on. It's interesting, as you go through verses 8 through 14, you see this particular idea um, mentioned more than once. In verse 8, he says, but now also put off. And then in verse 9, he also says, ye have put off. And then in verse 10, he says, and have put on. It's interesting that um, he uses those two words in the Greek because they carry with it a significance. And we know that he's talking about um, baptism because of the picture that he paints paints here. The word for put off and the word for put on that you find both in uh, verse 8 and verse 9 and verse 10 and it also is somewhere else. Verse 12, he uses put off twice and he uses put on twice and he uses the same word. the negative and the positive of each one of those. And those are in the aorist tense. Aorist means punctiliar, means it happened at one time, and it only happened once. And so this has to be talking about the time when they became a Christian. And the word picture that it paints is, is the idea of removing clothes and putting new clothes back on. And there is a tradition in some aspects of the early church, don't know if this is true or not, but I was reading something talking about these particular Greek words that, that in some baptismal ceremonies, um, probably around the 2nd or 3rd century, they would have someone who was a candidate for baptism, before he was baptized, put on grave clothes, wrap themselves up in some type of clothing that was considered a shroud or whatnot. And then they would be, be buried in those grave clothes, and when they came up out of the water, they would take those clothes off and put on a white robe. And that was the significance of when a person becomes a Christian, they die, they are dead, they are buried, and then they rise to walk in newness of life with clean white robes. And that's the idea of being uh, pictured here, that when we have put off that dead man, then this is going to be the case. And when we have put on that new man, then this is going to be the case, is the idea. And, of course, he's going to emphasize in verse 11 that this takes place all in Jesus Christ. Literally, it says in the text, Christ is all and in all. He's everything that we need. And so this is all the background behind it. But there are some interesting things in this particular text. Well, let's begin with verse uh, 8. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, Filthy communications out of your mouth. All right, like some of the things we saw last week, the way they're listed in the King James is a little different listed in some other versions. Um, King James has 
Um, five things in this one verse. They've got he's, the King James has anger, wrath, malice, blaspheming, and familiar, filthy communication. Now I'm just curious, what do other people have in different translations? Because it will vary because they're not sure about somehow the word should be translated here. Dirty language, okay. So you got filthy language, and she got dirty language. All right. <laughs> uh, what you got? What you got, Betty? Well, we weren't going to bring that up. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting. You start looking at the words. Very first word for anger is from the Greek word or, organ, which is not organ like O R G A N. It's O R G E N, and it's Every time I see it, it kind of reminds me of a mean, angry ogre, because that's the Greek word there, and it kind of makes me think about that. But it's an interesting word in the Greek because it doesn't actually mean anger. And in fact, it means the word that the King James has next, the word wrath. Okay? But it's a special kind of wrath. It's a wrath that the exact same word is used to describe the wrath of God. Uh, if, you talk, if you look up the previous verse, uh, where it talks about for which things sake the wrath of God in verse 6, there's the same word. And so it carries with it more than just the idea of being mad or being angry. It carries with it the idea of an angry judgment that you have no right to judge. In other words, this is a wrong kind of judging. This is an angry type of judging. This is a judging coming out of anger because of something somebody did to you or something that uh, you think should be a different kind of way or some other kind of slight, whether it was real or imagined. Uh, anger is like that in a way. We get angry at somebody because of what they've done to us. But this carries with it even greater force in the fact that you don't need to let your wrath be extended to that person because of the way you're judging them. Because that's only reserved for God. And that's the idea behind that particular Greek word, uh, origin. And um, so it's not really talking about anger like we think of anger. Uh, but instead, the next word in the Greek that the King James has for wrath, and what did y'all have as a second word? Rage. That's more like the word for anger. And the fact, the Greek word here is a word that's used to describe the flash fire of straw burning up. Um, if you've ever been out camping or ever made a fire, if you really want to get the fire going real fast, you put some pine needles in it or some other kind of hay, some kind of dry grass, because it will flash up very quickly. It might light the kindling to get the rest of the wood burning, but if you just try to make a fire out of that, you're going to be very disappointed because it burns up in seconds. It burns really hot for a short period of time, but it only burns for a second. And that's a good picture of what's being talked about here about anger. You ever heard anybody say, boy, he's hot. Oh, he's hot. Well, it's hard for a person to stay hot very long. After a while, their anger goes down. That's the very nature of anger. Uh, You know, we get fired up about something, and usually anger is spontaneous that happens when we overreact. Anger in and of itself is not wrong. You can have a spiritual anger about things by being upset about them. The kind of anger that's being talked about here is the flashpoint kind of anger, where we react without thinking, where we attack without thinking, where we hurt other people without thinking. 
And Paul says now that you're a Christian, now that you have taken off those old grave clothes and put on these new white robes because you're in Christ, you need to change your attitude like you may have had before. First of all, you need to be careful you don't judge people in the wrong kind of way when you have no right to judge them and execute wrath against them. And if there is someone who has done something wrong towards you, don't you let it get a hold of you and become a flashpoint. Uh, What's the old saying that all the mothers used to tell the kids, count to ten before you do something? Well, the purpose of that is to stop that flashpoint because the things that people do in the heat of the moment, the flashpoint of anger, are the things that causes the most problems. There have been people killed if they had just waited ten more seconds and thought about it. But like that straw that catches fire and burns hot just for a second, that's what's being talked about here. All right, I brought up two different things here. Any comments? Uh, the next word that we have is the word malice in the King James. And um, don't remember the actual Greek word for it now, but, um, but how would you define malice? Malicious behavior, and of course malicious is a, der- a derivative of malice. So we're talking about malice behavior, malicious behavior, which is bad behavior, but what is malice? Okay, it's the idea of wanting to hurt someone so they can suffer. You're wanting someone else to suffer. And of all the things of Christianity that a Christian should never be guilty of is wanting someone else to suffer. You know, there's funny, but sometimes we get upset because somebody has something good happens to them. And we think that's not good. We want those people to suffer. Or when maybe someone does suffer, we take some glee in it because we say, well, they got what they deserve. We're glad they're suffering. Well, that's so far from Christianity. Uh, We should never want any ill will toward anyone. Um, I was telling Karen that sometime the last couple days, I don't know when it happened for sure because I didn't notice it until the other day, but somebody came along my side of my car and took a key and just scraped it right down the side, dug it in deep. And I don't know if that was somebody at the school where I work. I don't know if it was somebody that maybe they thought I didn't park in a good kind of way. Or maybe somebody was just being malice and hateful and mean. They were wanting somebody to suffer who was a stranger. Now, it's just a car. It doesn't bother me. It irritates me. It doesn't really make me hurt in any way. I mean, but still, it's just the idea of somebody coming along and have the meanness to just just dig, a, dig something into the side of my car, all the way across. You can tell it, wasn't, it was done on purpose. Um, but that's what I'm talking about when you think about the word malice. It's, it's wanting to hurt somebody. It's wanting to make them suffer. And there could be a variety of reasons. Maybe it's because you want to execute judgment upon them, as Paul's already mentioned, that we can't be guilty of. Maybe it was a flashpoint of type of anger that said, I need to make sure that they hurt in some way because they've hurt me. Uh, Revenge is best served up cold, I think is what they say or whatever, which that makes no sense to me. Why would it be is it hot or cold? It doesn't matter to me. If it's revenge, it's revenge. But that's the kind of idea here, that you want to hurt somebody. You want to make them suffer. Yes. <clears throat> Absolutely. And, um, and that shows you that malice can be something that, if you're not brought into check, can eat you up. In fact, all these things that that Paul is talking about here that we should have left in the baptistry, that's literally what he's saying. He's saying these things you should left in the baptistry. When you came out of the baptistry, those things should have been gone. That's the difference between what you used to be and what you are now. Yes, Flo? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, to, to a certain extent. Yeah, he'll get his just rewards. Well, agape love, Christian love, the purest form of love that God has for us, agape love always wants the very best for another person. And that's what we're supposed to have toward one another is the very best. Not say, well, I hope it works out that he hurts for this or he suffers for this or even breaks even. Okay? So we're not supposed to be guilty uh, of wrathful uh, judgment. We're not supposed to be one who has a flashpoint type of anger. We're not supposed to wish suffering upon one another. And then the next word in the King James is probably the closest they've got it right is the word blaspheming. And what was some of the things y'all had for the word blaspheme? It's the fourth word in the row. Slander. All right, the reason why I say blaspheme is the good word here is because the Greek word is blaspheming. This is a, one of those, this is a transliterated word. We get the word blaspheme from the actual Greek word, like baptism is a transliterated word. It actually comes from the Greek word baptizo. We don't translate it, we just transliterate it. And that's the case here with this word. The actual word is the word blaspheming. Okay, now what does it mean, somebody said slander, but let's look at it at the point that Paul wants to make it. What does it mean to blaspheme? All right, all right, so that's exactly right. To blaspheme God, what are we doing to God? Give me, I don't say use bad language or anything, but what does it do to God when we blaspheme God? Put him on our level. It brings him from where he is up here and brings him down here tries to demote him to something else. When people use the Lord's name in vain, they're used, what that means is they're using it in an empty way. They're using it in a common way and not leaving God where he needs to be. Uh, sometimes people don't understand the sin of blasphemy or just you know, using profane language as far as God is concerned. But what it does, it takes, some, takes someone who is um, holy and righteous and our creator and demote him to a byword, okay? And in, form, in a sense of that, you're slandering God, okay? And that's, that's the idea behind the word here. And obviously, we shouldn't be slandering God or blaspheming God, but this is talking about a relationship with other people, not talking about God here. How would you blaspheme, say, Jeremy? But when you blaspheme another person... What are you trying to do? You're trying to tear that person down, which is what slander is. But this carries more of the idea because you make the connection now. Well, this is something that can happen with God if I profane and, and use his name in the wrong kind of way and describe him the wrong kind of ways. Well, you bring that down to a human level. What are you doing to that human? You're trying to do something to tear them down, to make them lower than you or put them in their place and that kind of thing. Yes, and, and the number one key, the number, number one way people do this is by gossip. Because very seldom does anybody slander somebody to their face. Usually it's always in connection telling someone else about someone so you can tear them down in your mind and in the other person's mind without the other person maybe not even knowing about it. Like when a Christian sister comes up to a preacher and says... I know I shouldn't tell you about this because it's really bad, but I figured you might want to pray for this person. Yeah, that's why you want to tell me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we need to have a word of prayer with her. 
But that's the kind of thing it's talking about. Now that we have, we've come out of the baptistry, going all the way back up to the very first verse of chapter 3, if you have been risen with Christ, these are the things you leave in the baptistry. You don't, you don't be guilty of, of gossip. You don't try to blaspheme another person to tear them down, to use their name and their life and their character in vain, to make up something empty. Vain means empty. So that's the idea behind that. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you're saying they have a lack of self-control because they want to control people other than themselves. That's exactly right. Any other comments? Yes, Flo. Well, my policy is always try to be, and I don't always do this right. I'm by far not perfect and guilty of things I shouldn't be guilty of. But even if something is true, doesn't mean you have to tell somebody else about it. Why, why tell someone else something, even that it's true, if it will cause the other person to suffer? What is your intent in telling the other person about something, body, that's something that is even true? What purpose does it serve? What intent do you have there? Is it to inform that person to make them think more of that person or less of that person? Doing something wrong, then you need to talk to the person who's doing something wrong unless it's for some reason that you're trying to protect someone, there might be some criminal intent, but just because you know something about someone and it might be absolutely true doesn't mean you need to go tell someone else about it. All right, if it's a criminal and you're afraid he's going to break in your house, you might warn your neighbors, hey, there's a guy down there with a crowbar and he's wearing a ski mask. I might tell someone about that, but most of the time what we're talking about is some, did you hear what I heard about so-and-so? And I know it's true because I saw it in the paper. Well, maybe. Let them read it in the paper. Don't you be the one that is a tailbearer, is what the Bible describes that. Because the purpose of that usually is not to, to make the person feel better or help that person. It's usually for the purpose of making that person suffer. And that's why we need to be very careful. These are the things that Paul says we left in the watery grave of baptism. Yes. And we, we need to understand, we always think about gossip being passing along false statements, but gossip is also passing along true statements if the intent is to pass it along as to have some useful purpose in it. Sometimes we just like to tell things to tell things, and we need to be very careful of that. Um, James talks about in James chapter 3 how a little kindling starteth a mighty fire. Well, what it's referring to, of course, is the mouth and how that one just one statement can sometimes start a fire that cannot be put out. And so you have to be very, very careful of that. All right, the next thing that it has is filthy communication. And this is very misleading in, uh, in a lot of different ways. Uh, I think you, you had dirty communication. You had filthy language. You had dirty Dirty language. And what did you have? Obscene talk. Obscene talk. It, it's unusual, but the Greek word here, carry, it carries with it more the idea of abusive language. Now, you can abuse someone with filthy language or dirty language, but that might be, make it too simple and saying, well, I'm not going to have a potty mouth. But there's more going on here than just that. It's abusing the language. In fact, the Greek word is the Greek word a language and another word that says against language. It's an abuse of the language 
in a way that you can either use it to abuse people or you can abuse the language itself. And so filthy communication, as the King James has, would be an abuse of language. Um, calling Jeremy fat, that, that's abusive language. You don't want to be guilty of that. Um, anything, <laughs> but anything that can abuse a person, can abuse the mind, can abuse the, the heart, that, that can be used to abuse um, is the kind of thing it's talking about here. The, the way that the, the, a lot of translations translate it, we're thinking, well, we're just talking about having a, a dirty mouth. Well, it's more to it than that. You know, I can never, ever use a profane word in my life or never say a dirty word in my entire life, but I can still be guilty of this. If I abuse someone with my language is the idea there. And literally, the idea of filthy communication is com- communication that is something that is used that is not right, and that's what abusive language is. We get too centered on the idea of of, of something being bad, but it's any kind of abuse of the language to hurt someone or tear them down or attack them spiritually or anything. So we've got a lot going on here, and then he says that almost seems out of of place, but he's not talking about just filthy communication out of your mouth. He's talking about out of your mouth, all these things is the idea in the grammar. So put off these, anger out of your mouth, wrath out of your mouth, malice out of your mouth, blaspheming out of your mouth, filthy communications out of your mouth. Now, has he made just a stupid, stupid statement here? If it was filthy communication was the only thing he was talking about, it almost seems dumb. If you're doing filthy communication, wouldn't that come out of your mouth? So why does he say, out of your mouth? I'm sorry? <laughs> I guess you could write them, but that's a good point, but that's not what he's talking about. He's trying, to, he's trying to show us something here, how human nature is. I may, Jeremy might have done something, we're picking on Jeremy like because he's wearing that shirt, but, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, Jeremy might, Jeremy might have done something to upset me, Okay. And it's up here, and it may made, made me mad, and I maybe I might be a little angry about it, and I, mean, I might even thought in my mind, well, he need, he ought to suffer for that. He ought to I ought to act some vengeance on him on that. But you know what? If it stays up here and doesn't come out here, the damage has never been done. And that's the idea of, of what Paul was talking about here. He says, don't let that come out of your mouth. He understands the fact that sometimes we're going to be upset about something. Sometimes we're going to, we, go, we might feel that somebody has, has done something to us or we might feel like uh, they need to be punished in some kind of way. But we, as we're going to find out later in the text, and Beverly's already alluded to this, because we left all those things in the baptistry, we now have a certain type of self-control where that's not going to come out of our mouths. We're not going to use our mouth as an instrument to show wrath, to show anger, to show malice, to show blaspheming, to show filthy communication. Do you have your hand up back there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, every now and then a wife will say she's not mad, but you know she is. <laughs> Anything wrong? Oh, no, nothing's wrong. Nothing's wrong. <laughs> Uh, 
well, you got to be careful what you think, but the point that Paul is making is don't let something that starts as the stimuli get a response out of you, is the idea. Nip in the bud, nip it in the bud like Barney used to say. You know, anybody, anybody knows who Barney is, right? You know who Barney is, don't you, Flo? Well, that's my point. You didn't say it. We're all human. We think things about people sometimes that maybe we shouldn't think about them. And we got to be careful, though, that we don't use what we have thought about somebody, whether we were right or wrong, to do some kind of damage to that person. If you never share those thoughts with that other person, how are they going to know you ever thought that? How are you ever going to hurt them with your thought? Well, I've been to college, well, I feel good because you've never, you've never come up and apologized for, to me for all the things you thought about me. So. <laughs> but I think you see the point that Paul is making. He's not giving us license to just think bad things about people. The point that he is making is when something like this does happen in your mind, don't take it the extra step and let it come out of your mouth is the idea. Nip it in the bud. Yes. Absolutely. And don't, don't misunderstand me. The, the mind can be used to sin even in these areas. John talks about in 1 John chapter 3 how that if we hate our brother, we're just as guilty of, we're guilty of murder. Uh, if we carry hate in our brother to someone that we're supposed to love. So what you think can be sinful, but that's not what Paul is driving at here. He's talking about stopping it before it gets to that point. Uh, because of the things, notice everything that he's talked about is something that usually comes out as, um, as a reaction to something that you're thinking about. And that's, that's the point that he's making. Yes, Jeff? Absolutely, absolutely. It stays, it stays, your sin in your head may be one sin, but it doesn't lead to other sins. Good point. They are dangerous. They are dangerous. Um, it's funny... Of course, if you take a knife and cut your tongue in half, it's going to leave a scar. But have you ever noticed if you ever bit your tongue or you cut it with a potato chip or something to the point that it's bleeding and you can even see the blood coming out, you check your tongue a couple days later, there's no scar there. It's one of the few organs of the body that doesn't scar unless it's mangled for some reason. But just a simple cut, it won't leave a scar of any type. But boy, it can leave some scars on other people. And that's why you have to be very, very careful with your tongue. But he goes on and talks about the, one of the ultimate things, and he saves this for last. He says in verse 9, uh, lie, not to, uh, lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. And once again, he's saying that you, know, you should leave lying in the baptistry, that one of the worst things you can do with your mouth, after naming all these things, he names the ultimate thing that you can do, and that is to lie. And um, lying serves no purpose other than to to, uh, it's based on selfishness to protect yourself or to, get, to gain some advantage for yourself. And I think we all understand the, the, the harm and the, lying because it breaks trust. And once trust is broken, it's so very hard to get back. But we're running out of time. Move on to the next verse. Now he says that you've left these things in the baptistry. When you come out of the baptistry and you're putting on that white robe, if you will, these are the things you're now wearing. You left these things in the baptistry, you're bringing these things with you. And so he says, have, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So he starts off and says, this is now what you're putting on. 
And it's interesting, I've mentioned that the word put off and put on in the Greek is in the aorist tense, means this uh, uh, something that happened at one time, at one particular time in life, or one particular action, which of course would be baptism. The word for renew is in the present tense, which means this continuous action. This is something in the Greek that means it's always happening. And it's interesting, depending on who you talk to, there's a lot of argument whether the renewing here is the renewing that God does or the renewing that you have to do. And this carries with it the idea that God's renewing you every day and also carries with it the idea that you need to try to renew yourself every day. This is something that's continuous action. But the reason why they say that God might be involved here is because the renewing is in the knowledge that is after the image of him that created him. So what is the knowledge here he's talking about? Well, the knowledge of what God has done by giving us Jesus Christ. So there's some discussion if the renewing is a personal renewing, which of course is important, or it's the renewing that God does for us every day because of the forgiveness that we get in Jesus Christ that of course takes place once we come out of the baptistry. Makes sense to me. But then he says the most oddest thing, and you almost think he must have left the paper for a few moments, wrote something down, then came back and started over where he meant to start over. Because right here in the middle, he says, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. And then he goes on and says some things we're supposed to do as far as mercy and kindness and humbleness and mind meekness and long-suffering, forgiveness and forbearing. Why in the world did he stick verse 11 in there? It's just like it's out of place. It's like, where did that come from? What does verse 11 have to do with everything he's talking about? And I agree with you 100%. But think about what's happening in this section. He's saying when you're, in the, you're buried in the water grave of baptism, there's some things that now have been put off. All these evil things you can do with your mouth. And then he's going to tell us, as he continues the thought, when you come out of the baptistry and you're the new man, here are some things you're going to be now doing. And the things that he says we're going to be doing, we're going to be kind, we're going to be humble, we're going to be meek, we're going to be long-suffering, we're going to be forbearing, we're going to be forgiving. Now, what does verse 11 have with putting off the bad talk and putting on the good attitudes. All right, and that's part of it too. Notice what he is dealing with here. He is dealing with differences in people. Everybody is different. And what causes us to do bad things when we shouldn't be doing bad things with our mouth? It's the differences in people. What causes us not to do the good things we should do, like practice kindness, forbearance, forgiveness? It's the difference in people. And so he's letting us know here in this verse that as far as Christ is concerned and being in Christ, being a Christian, being in the church, there's no difference in the way that you treat people. This applies to whoever you run into. And when, if you live during this time period and you, and you look at the categories he brought up here, you're talking about a, a situation where there were some major divisions, some great obstacles to overcome. 
Um, we may deal with some of these type of attitudes in today, but back then, the difference between a Greek and a Jew, man, it was almost insurmountable. And Paul is saying now that we're all Christians, I don't care if you're a Greek or a Jew, you're going to treat each other the same way. I don't care that you were raised as a Jew. And these Greeks you always thought were nasty, terrible people because they ate pigs. You treat them the same way as you treat another Jew. Yes, Beverly. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. As a new believer, you're supposed to start practicing these things because that's what you've put on. But I think it's interesting Paul does something here he never does anywhere else in any other book, and you have to look close to see it because he uses this phraseology often where he says, where there is neither Greek nor Jew. Tell me what's different about that. All right, very good, Jeremy. I think Barbie picked up on that too. She was nodding her head. This is the only place where he switched it around. And it may be he was emphasizing, because remember what he was dealing with earlier? how that the Gnostics were treating people differently because they weren't following the Jewish law and doing the things like that. Well, this time, instead of putting the Jew first, and the reason why Paul did that is because salvation came to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. But here he switches it around and lets you know, hey, you think you've got some kind of priority? No, you don't. I'm putting, the, I'm putting the Greek first, which is kind of interesting switch around words. And then he deals with circumcision and un- nor uncircumcision. We don't think about this very often because we don't even have this discussion anymore in this day and age. But back then, if you were someone who was uncircumcised, especially to a Jew, you were considered the most unclean thing there was. You were just considered just trash. That's not the case anymore in Jesus Christ. But then he goes on and says, barbarian. What is a barbarian? That's exactly right. That's where the word comes from. They thought they were saying barbar. But this is a class of people that didn't fit under the Greek and didn't fit underneath the Jewish protocols. They were the real outcast, okay? But what's even more interesting, after he talks about the barbarians, he mentions the Scythians. Now, I'd be surprised if anybody knows anything about this, but what was the deal? Why bring up the Scythians? Now, here, the Scythians um, were from the area that's now Iran, and they were considered the worst of the barbarians. Uh, Josephus talks about how they would kill their young, and they would never bathe, and how they drink the blood of their enemies and wear their uh, scalps as headdress, and they're just considered the worst of the worst of the worst. It's almost like Paul said, well, I'll bring up barbarians, but let me bring up the very worst barbarians I can think of. And so the lesson for us is, um, of course, it can't happen now, but if somehow or another, just to bring up an example, say Hitler came walking through that door, knowing everything we know about Hitler. If he was still alive today and he came through that door and he wanted to come worship with us because he had decided he wanted to come to church. Man, we know some bad things about Hitler. Are we supposed to treat him any differently than we treat anybody else that came through the door? Paul's day, it was, oh, a barbarian came through the door. Oh, man, it's a Scythian. Oh, man, they're awful. Well, you're still supposed to show them these these things and not do the things that he talked about. Yes, sorry to put you off there. That's exactly what he's saying. Very good. So whether you're Jew or Greek, circumcision or uncircumcised, barbarian, even if you're a Scythian, bond nor free, he says, but Christ is all and in all. What does that have to do with what he just said? But Christ is all and in all. 
All right, very good. That's a good way to put it. Um, The most important thing is serving Jesus Christ. Think about what Christ has done for you. Think about this is what happens when you come out of the baptistry, that when we come out of the baptistry, whether we're male, female, Jew, or Greek, uh, bond or free, barbarian or whatever, we come out of that equal. We're all children of God. God created us equal. And so we need to be very careful that we don't do anything but treat people that way. Well, our time is up, and I didn't get down to the next couple of verses I wanted to, but we will pick up there next week. Thank you for all your comments and your, and your good attention.